Nothing compares the excitement that I have this morning to come and share with you guys and to open up God's Word and, and really um, share His truth with us. And a few weeks back, or maybe longer, when we were bringing up the series of contending for the presence of God, um, I was asked to share on this Sunday, and so I started praying about it. God, what, what would you have me share? What do you want me to share about contending for the presence of God? What are you laying upon my heart? And man, he just began, and everything I was doing from going to man camp and being up in Moab to um, the mentoring that I do and, and some of the Bible studies I do, the scriptures were just popping out of where he was challenging me. But I, I started off saying, okay, if I'm contending for the presence of God, what does that mean? And so I took the, the word contend. I said, what does contend mean? What do, what do we mean by contending for the presence of God? And so to contend means to strive in opposition or against the difficulties, to struggle. And I thought, well, what are the struggles that we face in contending for the presence of God in, in prayer? You know, how, how does this, this come about? And that led me to the greatest teacher who ever walked the earth and to the key factor in my own relationship with God, and that is Jesus Christ. And we read throughout the Gospels of Jesus over and over, taking time. Here he is, the Son of God, and he's taking time over and over again to get away and pray. Get away and spend time with his father. It's so much so that his disciples, those that he was mentoring, those that he was discipling around him, they sat him down and finally said, teacher, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. We want to pray like you pray. And so as I was putting these things together, you know, I thought, let's, let's go back and look. And there's a, there's, a, there's a prayer that Jesus prayed, and it's found in the gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke. And, and so we're going to go in there. We're going to do Mark is, is where I'm going to focus at. It's the same story, but it's just kind of written a little bit different. And, and so we're going to talk about Jesus and how he prayed. And I thought, if we would really want to contend for the presence of God in prayer, I need to learn to pray like Jesus prayed. I need to learn to pray like Jesus prayed. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And you see all the cups here. It's not because we forgot to pay our cleaning crew. Um, there's a purpose behind those, and I'll be sharing that um, through my sermon and talking about even why there's some up here. These are left up here from the first service, and you'll understand that by the end. But going into this, uh, talking about, we're going to read in Mark chapter 14. So if you have your Bible, that's where we're going to go. And um, I'm going to open us up in prayer. Father God, I thank you, Lord. God, that we had this opportunity already to be in your presence. To sing praises to you, Lord. To feel you move in our lives and our hearts, God, this morning. And God, I just pray that as we open up your words, Lord, that you would just cut deep within us, Lord that you would take these words and help us to apply them to our life and how we can use um, your prayer, God, to influence our life. In your precious name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to read this with you, and then what we're going to do is I'm going to walk you back through the verses and give you some points to, to, to think about as we talk about praying as Jesus prayed. So Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? 
Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because they were, their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So as we go through this, we take this scripture and break it down. I'm going to break it down in three parts. And the three parts are, as you'll see, um, is where the cups come in, but they'll help you understand where I'm going with this. And the first one, starting off, as we spell out the, the, the word cup, is, a, is the letter C. And this is the contending. Again, contend is to strive in opposition or against the difficulties to struggle. And so my question to you this morning is, what are you in opposition with? What are you in opposition with this morning? What is the thing that, that you're contending with? And as we go back to Scripture, we start off in, in verse 32, and it talks about Jesus. It says he went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was a place where olives were pressed to produce the finest oil. And it's here where we see Jesus pressed in prayer. One of my favorite authors put it this way, Leonard Sweet. He says, the paradox of human will, take this cup from me, struggling with divine will, your will be done. And if we read in John, John talks about this same place of Gethsemane and said, Judas, the one who was going to betray Christ, knew this place very well because Jesus often met there with his disciples to pray. So this is a, a place that Jesus often went to, to spend time in prayer. And in verse 33, it goes on. He says, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And this is, this is where we're going to hit on. And, and began to be deeply distressed and troubled to a point of saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You ever felt this way in your life? Like Jesus said, that I'm overwhelmed? He said, I'm deeply sorrowed. So here Jesus is as he's being honest with the disciples and he's going in saying, I am just being overwhelmed. I'm distressed at, at, at what's before me. He's contending of what's before him. But what was so overwhelming Jesus at this point? What was it? Was it the extreme pain he was about to face? Was it the betrayal of Judas, who's going to betray him with a kiss? Or even was it his own disciples who were going to deny him? What was this overwhelming sorrow that he was feeling? And it wasn't those things at all, because in, if you look in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 19, he challenges his disciples that this will happen to them. So Luke 21, verses 12 through 19, he put it this way, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom, and none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. He says this, you will be betrayed, even by your parents, by your brothers, by relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. So it wasn't that thing that he was, he was sorrowed with. What was it? What was Jesus overwhelmed by? Jesus was about to face the guilt and shame of sin for the very first time. His own father was going to turn his back on him. And why was he doing this? He was doing this for us. He was doing this for us. 
Not only was it suffering by design, but it was also by obedience. Jesus embraced the pain. He chose it. Philippians 2.8 says, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 talks about this obedience and suffering. It says, during the days of Jesus' life on the earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He became our salvation through this obedience. But again, why the cup? Why the cup in our seats? As we continue to read through these scriptures and talk about this cup, I want you to start thinking about what is in your cup. That cup before you, the cup that's on your seat, the cup that you set down on the floor, whatever it is, but what's in your cup? What is overwhelming you? What is weighing you down? Every one of us in this room has something in our cup. It could be sin you can't let go of, addictions you're holding on to, bitterness, anger towards someone, unforgiveness towards someone who hurt you. It might be physical pain upon you or maybe a family member, an illness that has struck you or someone that you know. It could be a family member who has walked away from Christ. And how much it burdens you, how much it overwhelms you to know that they've chosen to walk away. It might be someone that you know that doesn't even know God, hasn't experienced this, this freedom in Christ, and it overwhelms you, it burdens you. But what's in your cup? What are you holding on to? So be thinking about your cup as we move on to the second point, and that's the you. And I label this one unity. And why do we get unity out of this? If we continue reading back in Mark again, verses 35 and 36... Going a little farther, says he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus started off, and what did he do? He fell to the ground and did what? Felt sorry for himself? Started being overwhelmed by that stuff? He was overwhelmed, but what did he do? He said, I prayed. He prayed. He prayed. He fell to the ground and prayed. And how did he start his prayer? He started his, he started his prayer the same way he taught the disciples. When they said, teach us to pray, he said, start off by saying, our Father who art in heaven. And he used the term, and he, he uses it here, he says, Abba, Father. A term of endearment, a term of, of almost like a daddy, Father. And so Jesus starts off saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. Then he says something so powerful which God already knew, but he says this, everything is possible for you. God, everything is possible for you. So as you look at your cup and what it represents to you, and as we cry out to God, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, do we truly believe that everything is possible for God? If we're going to pray like Jesus prayed, he did that. He said, Abba, Father, but he says everything is possible for you. Whatever's in your cup, it's possible. Everything is possible for God. But then he went even beyond that. As we cry, everything is possible. In verse 36, he says, take this cup from me. And isn't that every one of our prayers this morning? It's God, take this cup from me. Take whatever's overwhelming me. Take whatever I'm contending against right now. Just take it from me. Because everything, you're, nothing is impossible for you. 
So why can't you take this from me? But then he goes on. He says this powerful three-letter word. He says, yet. Yet means nevertheless. On top of everything else, no less. He says, yet. And he followed that powerful three-letter word with a sentence that changed history for every one of us. It changed history for every one of us. He says this, not what I will, but what you will. Or if you're a Princess Bride fan, he said, as you wish, right? So, but not what I will, but what you will. So I looked at that and said, what is will? What is will? Will is desire. Will is desire. As I was putting this sermon together and talking to my wife about it, she gave me a podcast and I was listening to it. And, and there's some interesting things in there that was talking about desire. And it started off and it, it talked about, um, about our nation and how it started to change back in 1945, back in Ira's era. <laughs> and I thought, well, 1945, what was happening around that time? And, and we know about the war was ending, but you know, the average cost of a new house was 4,600 bucks for a new house. Average wages were 2,400 a year. Cost of a gallon of gas, 15 cents. Average cost for house to rent was $60 a month. Average cost of a new car, $1,000, right? And so these things were happening in 1945. But in 1945, things changed because the, the, the war ended. And before that time, America was built around need. People were going to work because of the need. People were going out to fight because of the need. And things started to change from need to desire. To a point to where we're at now. I saw someone's post the other day about they, they had this wish, you know, that's like they can hear what you're talking about or what you're, you know, looking at because all of a sudden all these advertisements start popping up wherever you're at. And you're like, what in the world? And he's, this wish is trying to get you to, you know, thinking this is something that you probably need. And some of it was pretty outrageous. I'm like, How, why would I ever need that? And then my son buy, buys into this big time. Um, I'm taking him hunting next week. We're going to go elk hunting next week. And, and so he's watching his shows and they always have the advertisements and it's it's hunting, so they're showing you all the stuff that you need to have on this hunt. So he's giving me this list of all the stuff that we have to have, and I'm like, no, you don't have to have all these things. You know, you don't need these things. You may desire these things, but you don't need all these things. You know, and we live in a society now that, that we feel like we, have to, we need all these things, and it's just things that we desire. So I had to sit him down and talk to him about the difference between need and desire. But what would it take to satisfy human desires? Everything. Desire is never satisfying. We never have enough, right? There's always something better, always something more, always something else we can have. Desire is never satisfying. Desire, again, will, proper place is on God and what God's will is. That's where the proper place of desire is. Do you drive desire or does desire drive you? Do you drive desire or does desire drive you? And so in my life group, I, life group meets at our house and we've been going through a study together and it's a study the church has done before and it's, it's the, the study of emotionally healthy spirituality. And it, it's, like I said, this whole time I'm preparing my sermon, God keeps walking these things in front of me that, that fit so perfectly in what I'm sharing this morning. And the study starts off with an iceberg as an illustration. And the iceberg talks about on the surface, all you see is a little bit of the iceberg. But the dangerous part is what's underneath, right? 
The dangerous part that, that can sink boats and all that kind of stuff is what's underneath the surface. And if you think about it, that's really what your cup represents. You know, the stuff on the outside that everybody can see, we put on a pretty good face. And we can put on a smile face and feel like we're pushing through, but we really know what's underneath that's really dangerous, what's in our cup. And as we're going through this, the last week we talked about this chapter that was titled, The Journey Through the Wall. And, it, and it's subtitled, Letting Go of Power and Control. Letting Go of Power and Control. The Wall is a book that was written 500 years ago by St. John of the Cross. Cool name, right? And it's entitled, The Dark Night of the Soul. Dark Night of the Soul. And think about it. Isn't this what Jesus was having at this moment? It says he sat down and he was, he was just almost to the point of death, sorrowful about what was happening this evening because he knew all these things that were to take place and he was having the dark night of the soul. Luke describes his agony that it was like sweat. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's how much an agony he was about what was in his cup. And so as you go through this, it talks about the six stages of faith in the study that we're doing. And it starts off with stage number one. Stage number one is the life-changing awareness of God. And many of us in this room have had stage one. We've had this, this opening of our eyes of, of who Christ is, and we've accepted him in our life and know that, that he has this life-changing power for us. And that's the beginning stage, stage one. And then we go into stage two. Stage two is discipleship starts to happen. We start learning about God and getting rooted in our faith. You know, a new Christian can't get enough. They're diving into the word. They want more information because they're like, Jesus Christ changed my life. I want to know more about him. So stage two is that discipleship. We hit stage three, and that's the active life. It's doing stage. It's getting involved in the work of God. We want to give back now. We'll teach a class. We'll serve at the church. We'll do whatever it takes. We're at stage three. Then all of a sudden, stage four hits, and that's the wall. They call this the journey inward. A lot of times, this is where we get overwhelmed by our cup. The wall usually appears through some crisis that turns our world upside down. It could be a divorce, a job loss, a death of someone close, an illness, a health issue, a bad church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, dryness or loss of joy. We could go on and on and on about what's in that cup, that wall that we come across. We question ourselves, we question God, and we question the church. And even as we just read, Jesus questioned his father, right? Like most persistent kids, he didn't just question him once. He questioned him three times, right? He went back again saying, Dad, really, do I have to go through this? Since three times he went to his father as a persistent kid and asked him this question. Not only did he do that, but he asked, you know, he took the disciples with him to the garden. He left them there and he took three of his closest friends even farther into the garden with him. He said, pray with me. But just like when we ask others to pray for us, the heaviness of the wall isn't the same for them as it is for us, is it? Someone might pray for us, but they're not carrying the same weight that we're carrying. They don't know what's in our cup, or they may know what's in our cup, but they're not carrying the weight of it. And they can pray for us, but it's not the same because they're not going through that. Just like the disciples, they didn't understand the, the weight that he was carrying. And so stage five is the journey outward. 
But now we are grounded in God's desire for us, not our own. And then stage six, transformed into love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So I ask you, why do we love? Well, we love because he fulfills our desire, right? We love because he fixes our problem. We love because he, wants, he does what we want him to do. It doesn't say that. We love because he first loved us. And what happens is we have this cup and, and, and we're offering it to him and we think that if he loves us, he's just going to take this cup away and everything's going to be fixed. But that's his, fix, that's his feeding into our desire and our will. But where's God's will in this? God, where are you at in this? We love because he first loved us. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I heard just talked about that, right? It's not to rely on us, but to rely on the one who raises the dead. When everything in life is stripped away except God, and we trust him more because of it, this is gain, and he is glorified, and we are unified with him. Unity, not my will, God, yours. Unity with the Father. So this leads us to the last point, if you're still with me, or maybe you're like the disciples and you've fallen asleep. <laughs> um, this is the last letter in, in cup. So we have contending for the presence of God. We have unity that needs to happen, and that unity is accepting the will of God, not our will. Accepting his desire, not our desire. And the last one is peace in the storm. Peace in the storm. And as, as Jesus walked into this, this deepest time of his, as he walked into this prayer time, and it says he was deeply distressed and troubled. He was overwhelmed almost to death. But think about this. How did he leave? How did he leave? What changed? Because he got up from that last time of praying after being so overwhelmed to a point of death, and he walked out of there, and what did he face? He faced betrayal from Judas. He faced being arrested. He knew what was happening. He was heading to the cross. But he wasn't overwhelmed anymore. Why was that? He wasn't burdened by what he was going through. Why was that? He became our peace. The curtain was torn, and we now have access to the Father. His Father. We now can cry, Abba, Father, just as he did. Ephesians 2, 12 through 18. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, were once, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose 
was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He, cre- he came and he preached peace, peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So I don't know if you remember teaching your kids to ride a bike holding on to the back of it as you ran behind them. I remember doing that with my kids. I remember Zeke, it was like, no matter what, I'd let go and he'd crash. He's like, brakes? What are brakes for? You know. But there came a point where as you're doing that as a father that you let go and you have to just trust and let him go and, and do that and let him ride the bike and, and as they learn. And Jesus did this a number of times with his disciples. As he tried to teach them, he tried to, 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 to let them understand where he was going with this. And Jesus did this... Like I said, a number of occasions, but one that we're going to talk about that goes with our last point of peace is what I call peace in the storm. And in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to kind of just talk about it a little bit. Jesus gets in the boats with his disciples. If you remember his disciples, some of those guys were fishermen. They grew up in boats. They're around water all the time. They'd been in storms. They'd been through all this kind of stuff. So they kind of understood this. And so they get in the boat. Jesus goes up to the stern and does what I would do. He went to sleep. He laid down and he went to sleep and all of a sudden a storm hits and it begins to rock the boat to a point that the disciples get afraid. And he goes up to the, the disciples go to him at this point and, and uh, they said this to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? I mean, isn't that exaggerating a little bit? But teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus quiets the storm and then he says this, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? So I ask you, thinking about your cup, why are you still afraid? Why are you so afraid? And you might say, my circumstances determine my level of peace. You don't know what I am or what I've gone through or what I've been through. You don't know what I'm facing right now. And we, like the disciples, think that God doesn't care. Where are you, God? Don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you see the storm? Are you asleep? God, don't you care if I die in this storm? Jesus is teaching us peace is possible no matter the storm. Peace is possible no matter what's in your cup. He calms the storm. But he also leaves the garden to face his own cup. And you may wonder, if Jesus really saw all that was in the cup, then why did he go through with it? The cup was full of bitterness, and Jesus had a choice. Why do it? Well, because there was more. You see, Jesus looked beyond the sin. He looked beyond the suffering. He looked beyond the sacrifice, and even beyond the separation. And in the bottom of the cup was the bottom line, the one thing that turned that bitter cup into sweetness. He got up from praying, He dusted himself off. He released the disciples from the weariness of prayer. And he went down the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. Why? So that all of you may be saved today. We have salvation because he went after the will of his father, not his own. He gave up his cup. Philippians 3 puts it this way. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press onward to the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the last part of that fear part is my storm reveals my level of trust. My storm reveals my level of trust. Peace doesn't mean everything is going to turn out right in my life, does it? You know, that cup may not get answered to the way that you want it to be answered. But you're turning over, and to have trust, you got to just trust in Abba Father. Romans 12 puts it this way, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you believe in a God that can do the impossible? Jesus did. Do you pray like Jesus prayed? So look at your cup again. What's in your cup? What is the storm you are facing? We're going to have the worship team come up here. And this, this will explain why these cups are up here. And I'm going to ask you to do something this morning as we close out. But what is the storm you're facing? Have you cried out to your Father God? You know that nothing is impossible for you, yet not my will, but what you will. And this last song that we're going to be doing is, is as well with my soul. If you think about it, to have that peace... It's letting go of your cup, letting go of whatever you're holding on to and releasing it to God no matter the outcome, no matter what it looks like. So I've shared this morning about the letters to cup, the C standing for contending. What are you in opposition with right now? What is overwhelming you? Is it sin, addiction, illness? Health, unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, hurt, anxiety? Is it fear? Is it your past? Is it another person? Is it betrayal? Whatever it is, is in your cup. What are you contending with as you look at your cup? And then ask yourself, am I in unity with God? I know what I want, yet not my will, but what you will, God. And as we're singing this song, I want you to step out in faith, trusting your Father no matter the outcome, and release your cup to Him. And I want you to do this as we're singing this song is by coming forward and placing it at the altar. The altar in the Old Testament was a, was a place of sacrifice, a place of that forgiveness of sins, it was a place of releasing those things. So that the altar this morning is, is going to be one of those places. And you may come up here and you may do as Jesus did and drop to your knees and spend some time in prayer. But whatever it is, is during this song, I want you to bring your cup forward. And you may just set it down and go back, and that's fine. But I, I, another thing that's important is after the service is over, don't come back up and pick up your cup. 
And what I mean by that is so many times is we want to release something, but we still want to hold on to it. We're not ready to let go. But where is your faith? Is it your desire or his desire? So contend for his presence. Pray like Jesus prayed. Be in unity with Christ. Because there's peace in the storm. There's peace in the storm. So if you really want to contend for the presence of God, you have to pray like Jesus prayed.